Hello, welcome to the Friday, May 4th, 2018 edition of the Sands and its Storm Center's Stormcast. My name is Johannes Ulrich and today I'm recording from Jacksonville, Florida. Renato took another look at his WebLogic honeypot. No surprise, he's finding plenty of exploits taking advantage of the most recent WebLogic vulnerability. Remember, this is the one that's not perfectly patched yet. We have also seen over the last couple of weeks a pronounced spike in scans for port 7001, which is the port typically used by WebLogic. As far as payloads go, Renato found yet another crypto miner, but in addition, it also installed a scanning component that will look for additional vulnerable systems. We have not seen that much of it in the past. Usually they just install the miner, don't install the scanner, probably getting a little bit more aggressive in trying to find hosts that got missed by all the other scans for this WebLogic vulnerability. On average, only takes a couple hours these days for a vulnerable host running WebLogic to be exploited. Another sort of shift that we have seen, and that's also here something that Renato observed using his honeypot, was that more and more of these attacks are not targeting Windows hosts, probably because all the Unix hosts have already been exploited. WebLogic can run on Windows or Unix, Either is vulnerable, so instead of a bash script, you'll see a PowerShell script used if the attack is targeting Windows. And the SAN Security Awareness Project did publish its monthly ouch newsletter on Thursday. This time it's all about GDPR. GDPR will go into effect later this month. If you haven't heard about it yet, it's probably too late to learn about it now. But either way, it's a new directive issued by the European Union that deals with how to deal with private data of citizens of the European Union. So affects pretty much everybody who's doing any kind of business in the EU. Now, as usual, the Ouch newsletter is usually targeting the general public, not technical specialists like what we usually address in this podcast. But if you have relatives or non-technical co-workers that would like to have a quick five-minute primer in what GDPR is all about, then this newsletter may be a good thing to point them to. And this week, both GitHub and Twitter did notify their users that they did log passwords in plain text. Now, what we're talking here about is not passwords being stored in the database. Apparently, they did that correctly. Twitter said that they're using bcrypt, which is considered sufficient usually for password storage. But in addition to storing the passwords in the database, they occasionally log passwords in, well, a plain text logs. This is a very common mistake. I've also seen this with credit cards and the like. Developers like to add logging functions for debugging. Nothing really wrong with that as long as you do obfuscate, mask, or remove sensitive data. When you connect to Twitter, you may get a message suggesting that you should change your passwords. Now, the passwords themselves haven't really been leaked yet. They have just been logged in plain text. So there is no guarantee that they did not get leaked. 
And Facebook expanded the scope of its certificate transparency monitoring tool. If you're not familiar with this tool, it's really neat in that it can alert you whenever someone is getting a certificate for a domain that you own or any domain really that you register with the tool. Now, in addition to looking for certificates, the tool will now also look for homographs. Homographs are international domain names that look like your domain name by replacing certain characters with their foreign equivalent. Many modern browsers are also fighting back against the technique of mixing English and foreign characters within a domain name to create these lookalike domain names. Most modern browsers will actually not display international characters if they're mixed in with English characters. On the other hand, that doesn't apply to all browsers and attackers certainly will try this trick. We have seen it in particular this year come up quite a few times in attack against Bitcoin exchanges, for example. Facebook's certificate transparency log monitoring feature is free and there isn't really a good reason why you should not sign up for the tool. Well, and since it's Friday today, I'll continue after quite a break with interviews of STI, Sans Technology Institute, master's students. And with me today, I have Michael Long. Michael's paper, Disrupting the Empire, is about how you can identify PowerShell Empire command control activity in your network and on your endpoints. Michael, thanks for joining me here to talk about your paper. Okay, great. Uh, well, Hannes, uh, first let me say thank you very much for having me on the program. Um, as for me, uh, my name is Michael Long. Uh, I am presently a SANS master's student. Uh, nearing the end of the program, I have uh, the GSC uh, happening May 3rd and 4th. So i uh, going to be looking forward to that. Uh, otherwise, very happy to be here. Yes, Michael. So uh, one thing that you're talking about uh, in your paper is the use of intrusion detection systems to look for PowerShell or PowerShell Empire in particular. What are sort of some of the indicators uh, that you found useful here to detect that someone in your network is using PowerShell Empire? So PowerShell Empire has some pretty interesting indicators. Effectively, I divide the indicators into two lines of effort, uh, namely your network indicators and your host indicators. So on the network side, you'll see some interesting things from Empire, including anomalous URIs, things that resemble git.php, news.php. Uh, you'll see conflicting user agent strings, conflicting landing pages on the Empire C2 server, uh, incorrect TTL values. Uh, so on the network side, there's a lot of different behaviors that you can look for. On the host side, you can see some really interesting indicators in Windows event logs, particularly for Windows 8, Windows 10. Uh, by default, they capture pretty robust logging information for PowerShell activities. And uh, there's also PowerShell transcription. And uh, transcription is pretty neat. It basically takes a transcript of all PowerShell activity and uh, between that and Windows event logs, you can actually look at uh, malicious PowerShell activity in detail and uh, see exactly how the PowerShell payload is configured. Now, these uh, PowerShell event logs, uh, they actually look quite interesting. You know, being a Unix guy myself, uh, I compare sort of to bash history kind of. Is it comparable to that or is it any different in respect to detail or so you get from uh, these uh, Windows PowerShell logs compared to the Unix sort of bash history? 
So uh, I would say that it's actually a little bit more robust than uh, traditional Unix history files. You get the five W's regarding uh, any PowerShell activity that's executed. Basically, what was executed, when did it happen, on which system, and so on. One of the cool characteristics of PowerShell transcription is that uh, it will deobfuscate PowerShell codes on the fly. So uh, with PowerShell Empire, it's pretty common to see uh, Base64 encoded and otherwise obfuscated PowerShell one-liners. Uh, well, PowerShell transcription will capture the obfuscated command, and then it will go ahead and deobfuscate it for you so that you can read and see what was actually executed on the end system. And one last cool trick is once you have the uh, deobfuscated PowerShell, you can actually plug it into a C-sharp beautifier. And uh, you can actually insert carriage returns and line breaks so that you can see the PowerShell payload in its entirety in a human-readable format. That sounds really cool, like uh, really a lot more than uh, what you usually get out of your bash history. Do you have to be at all afraid that you're logging too much here? Like you're logging all PowerShell commands, not just malicious ones. Is it possible that you capture things like passwords or other confidential data and by logging it remotely in particular sort of inadvertently send this in the clear over the network? You know, that's always a challenge uh, when you're collecting uh, a lot of uh, sensory or logging information for endpoints. Um, I think a lot of it boils down to uh, making sure that data is protected in transit and at rest. Um, if you're using like an SMB share, uh, latest versions, SMB3 or IPsec, uh, you could configure it such so that information is encrypted in transit. Um, as for encrypting it on the endpoint, there's other solutions for that. I personally send all my logs to a share over SSHFS, and I encrypt the share with uh, GPG encryption. So a lot of different ways of sending that data. I guess uh, if you inadvertently capture information that's sensitive that you don't want, the equitable thing to do is to remove it, report it, and then uh, tailor your sensors so that you don't capture it in the future. So could you... Uh implement any kind of sanitizers on a collection end or would that have to be done sort of after the fact once it, the data is collected? You could definitely solve it with some PowerShell, Kung Fu, or even some, I, I would probably solve that problem with Python. I guess if you know the information you know you don't want to receive, like let's say usernames or maybe passwords in particular, uh, pretty easy to whip up a regular expression script that says, you know, sanitize all fields that contain the phrase password. So uh, you could definitely augment your capture with some additional scripts to sanitize the information that you know you're not going to need. So the host-based logging, uh, that really captures all PowerShell, whether it's malicious or not. With the network-based logging, you're looking for user agents and the like, and sort of more for the command control uh, traffic. Is this more specific to PowerShell Empire and malicious PowerShell versus sort of benign PowerShell that may be executed? What I've seen in my experience is that uh, malicious PowerShell is strikingly different than legitimate PowerShell, um, at least if we're talking about command and control payloads. Most weaponized PowerShell scripts are obfuscated, so you'll see combinations of base64, um, you'll see traditional PowerShell scripts that uh, have various permutations. In many cases, you're going to see that uh, malicious PowerShell scripts are running with uh, the no profile flag. So malicious PowerShell does have you know, strikingly different characteristics than traditional PowerShell. Okay, so uh, that wouldn't be too hard and to tell apart really or to write a signature. I know in your paper you have a couple snort signatures and such that uh, I believe mostly look for the user agent in this case. Or, uh, I don't remember, do you have any other signatures here that sort of look uh, for sort of malicious PowerShell script more 
general ways or is it really just a user agent you're looking for for an attacker? Right. So uh, there are additional indicators. Um, one of the ones that uh, I focus in on are the URIs that are used by PowerShell Empire by default. Um, you'll see it requesting pages such as process.php, get.php, news.php. And uh, typically when you see all three in use with some periodicity, that's a very strong indicator that uh, PowerShell Empire is in uh, use in your enterprise. Uh, there's one other one that uh, I, I look out for, and there's a string. So when uh, PowerShell Empire is communicating with the control server, if you actually look at the HTTP stream, you'll see a string that says, it works. This is the default page for this server. Um, it looks kind of like an Apache string, uh, but what's interesting is that uh, the server identifies itself as running Microsoft IIS on server 2008. Um, so between these strings, these contradictions, the URIs, uh, there's a lot of uh, indicators at the network level uh, that you could tune your sensors to to uh, identify PowerShell in use in your network. Are you aware of any more sophisticated attackers that modify a PowerShell Empire to specifically modify these strings, or is so far pretty much anybody just using the default here? So that's one of the challenges. So if you're dealing with a sophisticated threat actor, uh, you can basically guarantee that they're going to alter all of the signatures to blend in with, uh, within the target environment. And so when that's the case, you have to adjust your data points and start looking at some different things. Uh, if you're dealing with a threat actor whose traffic is flying low and slow, it's encrypted, um, oftentimes I fall back on uh, some associated metadata. For example, the number of connections, the duration of connections, and the amount of data being exchanged. Uh, typically, these data points will work uh, despite the adversary changing uh, the, the default signatures. Uh, because in most cases, when you're dealing with an infected host, uh, it's going to have an anomalous amount of connections, uh, a suspect amount of data being exchanged, and the frequency and duration of connections will likely be very different than normal user activity. That's really cool. I really enjoyed reading your paper. I'll add a link uh, to the paper, uh, to the show notes for the podcast. Uh, anything you're working on right now? Any final words? Yeah, at this point, I'm wrapping up the SANS Master's program. I'll be taking the GX Security Expert this week. Uh, beyond that, it's been an amazing experience, and I'm looking forward to continuing my cybersecurity education with SANS Institute. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. And by the way, I'm still doing some of that once a month raffle of a Raspberry Pi. If you find any errors or if you contribute or do anything else for this podcast, last month's winner for April was Ryan. Talk to you again on Monday. Bye.